You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am joined today with my two lovely co-hosts, Dr. Carrie Bedient from Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. And Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. Good to see you. How are y'all doing today? Great. How are you? Doing good, doing good. So we have a very special guest today. We have Nate Snyder, who is CEO of Ovation Fertility. And we're going to get into all what is Ovation and all that kind of stuff. But big welcome to Nate today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good stuff. Good stuff. So we were talking a little bit before this that, that you're a bit of a marathoner, huh? Yeah. So I definitely did. Uh, I've, I've run about five marathons, um, uh, LA, Chicago, San Diego. Um, and, uh, each one is a pretty unique experience. Uh, San Diego has what they call a rock and roll marathon where there's bands lined up, uh, along the, the course and you get all jazzed up Chicago at the time I ran, it was really cold and flat and, uh, w- you know, windy. And then LA is very hilly. You wouldn't expect that. Um, but it was very hilly and, you run through all the different sort of neighborhoods of Los Angeles and you do see some homeless, you see some beach communities, you see Beverly Hills. And so it was, it was a unique experience as well. Let me just say that you need to come to Nashville because we too have a rock and roll uh, oh. marathon. I haven't done the marathon. I've done the half marathon and it's, it's pretty hilly. I bet it'll rival LA as far as the hills go. <laughs> well, isn't it fun though when you have the live music by the side? Yeah. It's awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. When they do the one in Vegas, they shut down the strip, which there are about two two times a year when the strip gets shut down. One is New Year's Eve and the other is the Rock and Roll Marathon. They shut Oh my gosh. On a Sunday night and it is it is a party. I I kind of feel bad for the runners at that point because you know that there were poor decisions made the night before, (laughs) after. um, But it's uh, it's supposedly a really good time. Marathon Las Vegas style. We'll have to check that out. So, Nate, I have to ask you: Is there any special rituals that you do, like the night before the marathon, or anything? Do you wear anything special on the day of the marathon? Well, certainly it's not a ritual, but it's a good habit. You kind of want to wear the shoes that you've been training in, right? So you don't have any uh, surprise blisters. Um, I do like to, in the last sort of weeks leading up to it, wear the clothes I'm going to wear in the marathon so I can envision myself running in my final sort of training phase. But um, I guess the dinner the night before traditionally has been linguine and clams. Uh, So it's got a lot of carbs in it. It's not, you know, um, so far I've always had cooked clams. So I haven't had a, you know, a bad experience on the race day, but, um, I find that to be fairly good for my stomach and, uh, give me, you know, uh, ready for the race, uh, the next morning. So you're not of the mindset that it's better not to wear shoes or anything like that. Have you ever I'm seen, not that guy. You ever seen anybody running like that? <laughs> I have, and it's phenomenal. I mean, I guess it's the body's an amazing, you know, thing and you get used to it. And, uh, there's arguments to be made that we were designed to run without shoes. I personally think it's nuts, but I was the one, one of the half marathons I ran in. I remember looking over at this guy that had no shirt, he had these short shorts on, no shoes, and was just 
boom, 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 running. <laughs> I was going, oh my gosh, can't imagine that. Pretty phenomenal. I mean, typically those people are really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's um, there's a really phenomenal story about the um, one of the god awful race, hundred miler, in, in the mountains of Colorado, and of the team of I think five of them, all five were in the top 10 and like three of them were in the top five and they did the entire race running in what was the equivalent of old tires strapped to their feet. And when they had gone in other years and had been convinced, Oh, you need to wear whatever fancy footwear shoes they had, they had totally tanked and had ditched the shoes very rapidly because they weren't used to running in them. And so they did this hundred miler in in essentially bare feet or with with tires strapped to the the bottom of their feet. Not to mention the 12,000 foot elevation if they ran through Rocky Mountain Park. I mean, that's crazy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that they had um, people come in with alpacas uh, to be the the pit crews for these guys because they couldn't ask anybody else to do it at these elevations of temperatures. So maybe you can do that one for your next one, Nate. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the idea of Nashville and Vegas first yeah. to kick things off. So, so Nate, do you go for time or is just the experience of being a marathoner? Yeah, it's really the experience. I'm not a born long distance runner. So that's part of the challenge. Um, I do try and improve every race, but I'm not fast. I'm I don't put up impressive numbers. Um, I'll be what I'm proud of. Most proud of is the fact that I've never um, ended a race without finishing. So I've always I've never had a did not no, uh, awesome. did not finish. And so it's about sort of the grit and the you know just you hit the wall. I hit the wall almost every race, and it's about taking your breath and and just continuing one foot in front of the other. Um, and then you know the journey to get there is also really rewarding, right? Because you've got I, I typically follow a plan and it's many months and it builds up to some really impressive miles. And, uh, you know, um, as long as you take each step along the way, you can get there. Right. Um, and then you look back and you're like, holy cow, I just ran 20 miles today. That's pretty cool. You tell your friends, you're like, how the heck did you do that? Well, it was many months of running two miles a day and then three miles and then seven and then 10 and you just do it. And so it's just one of those things that makes, uh, it adds some variety to life. Um, and it's something that, uh, you know, that is not easy. And so I get a lot of reward out of doing something that's not easy. You know, I actually use that analogy or marathon analogy to my patients who are doing IVF. You know, when you, after you explain the whole experience of IVF, they're like kind of overwhelmed and just kind of don't know what else to say. And I'm like, you know, it's like a race. It's one, one step at a time. And that's, you just take it one step at a time. Don't think about the whole big process. Just think about taking the next step, which is kind of what you do in a marathon as you get closer to the end, I'm sure. Good philosophy for life and for fertility care. That's yeah. right. A baby through IVF is much more of a miracle than, than completing a marathon. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool. Very neat. Very neat. Well, we are going to go to our question of the day. So our question of the day is, what is your stance on first trimester IVF pregnancies and the COVID-19 vaccine? Should those expecting take the vaccine or not? Are there enough studies as to the effect on the developing fetus to support taking the vaccine or not taking the vaccine? If you are in a healthcare role, should you take the vaccine? So ladies. So with respect to the, are there enough studies at this point? No, there's not really any studies that when we go by what we do um, and the criteria that we use to say, this is a worthwhile study that meets the rigorous criteria that we would want, no. There's not enough. And part of the problem and reason for that is that 
anything that you do with a pregnancy-related study, you have to have nine months because kids got to be born. <laughs> and this pandemic has only been around for about a year. And so we're still getting the basic information on babies born and moms affected by COVID and how those pregnancies are affected, much less how the vaccine works. So as far as studies go, no, there's really not a whole lot of cold, hard data that we can rely on. But talk about, you know, we've, and we've talked about this in past episodes about in some of the studies looking, I think, at the Pfizer vaccine, there were some women, granted, it's not a randomized perspective study, but there were some women in that Pfizer study, right, that were pregnant or got pregnant during the study? So there were about, I think it was 23 women who were in that study who had gotten pregnant either right before their first dose, between their first and second, or immediately after their second. So they were very early on because the goal of the study was to exclude pregnant women, but there's, there are a lot happens. <laughs> when you do a study on thousands of people, pregnancies are going to occasionally happen. <laughs> really how most studies on, uh, on how pregnancy is affected by any given intervention, drug, surgery, whatever happen. It's, they do it on the non-pregnant people first and the adults. And then afterwards they bring in, okay, what happened to the people who accidentally got pregnant throughout the course of this? And in those studies, nothing, at least at this point, nothing has shown up that's developed into any issue, correct? That's true. And really with this type of vaccine, it's different than most other types of vaccines because it's not a live vaccine. It's being handed instead of a, a dead body thrown at you, it's being handed a set of instructions. <laughs> that's one way to put it, I guess. And I think it's important that set of instructions that codes for the protein that the antibodies are going to fight against, though there are some small similarities in structure to some placental proteins, there is no evidence at this point that the vaccine and the placenta should have any real effect on each other as far as we know. So to sum it all up, we, I think all three of us probably say the same thing to our patients, and that is probably a good idea to get it if you're exposed. And I think my feeling is we're all exposed. If you go to the grocery store, you're exposed. I mean, you don't have to be a frontline healthcare worker to be exposed. And so I've, you know, pretty much told my patients, you know, if they're asking my opinion, my opinion would be, you probably need to take the vaccine. Yeah, especially as the new variants come out and there's concern that they're going to be um, stickier, shall we say, more contagious. And that, that's really concerning. Pregnant ladies and COVID don't mix with things nothing good is going to happen when you get COVID while you're pregnant. Um, and so even though we don't have all the data on the vaccines, there's no reason to think that they're going to cause a problem. And protected is a, a really good thing, especially right now. Yeah. And, and there are getting to be some studies that are getting published just recently about potential effects of getting COVID-19 while you're pregnant and potential effects that may not be so great. So... Um, I think we all concur. Generally, we think it's a good idea. Um, it is a very personal decision, but COVID-19 is here for the time. And I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon, unfortunately. So, um, but kind of moving on into our main part of our episode. So Nate, kind of tell our listeners who you are and how you got involved in Ovation and what exactly Ovation is. So I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of Ovation Fertility. Ovation is a national network of IVF laboratories. Um, and we essentially are a company that focuses on supporting physicians by uh, um, using collaboration and research in order to develop 
the most high quality embryos that we can. So the partnership is such that we will have clinics that refer patients to us and um, we will do everything in our power to provide those physicians back the best uh, embryos uh, that that patient, those eggs and sperm can develop. Ovation was founded about five and a half years ago. And uh, in that time, we've also branched out to include other, what we call ancillary services to support uh, physicians and patients. And that includes genetic testing. That includes donor egg services. That includes surrogacy, surrogacy services and also um, long-term storage uh, as we create a lot of um, frozen reproductive material that can be stored for future cycles. And so um, Ovation really is, it's a physician and patient support company that really focuses on science. And, um, and that's who we are. So Nate, to be clear, because I think even I was trying to explain sort of how this works with one of my friends who's an OBGYN and she was like, I, I don't quite understand how all this works. So to be clear, we each have our individual practices. Patients come to see us. If the decision is made that IVF needs to be done, then we do the egg retrieval in an ovation facility. And probably more importantly, the embryos that we retrieve are then put together with a sperm and all of the innovation that you're talking about is applied to those embryos so that we can get the best development of embryos and so we can have really the best embryo to transfer back and give the patient the best chance for success. Is that kind of a good way to sum it up? That's exactly right. So the traditional fertility clinic is set up with a lab that's dedicated to that clinic. And the innovation that, that um, Ovation Fertility uh, had, had, some, had come across is the fact that, you know, there's a lot of um, value in the IVF labs and a physician's ability to drive a successful outcome, okay? So if we could acquire a number of IVF labs around the country and es essentially aggregate that knowledge into one collection of best practice and, uh, and then share across markets, we're essentially getting the best that occurs in Las Vegas, the best that occurs in Nashville, and the best that occurs in San Antonio, and we're bringing it all to the table. And then our scientists in Vegas and, and Nashville and San Antonio and those other markets, they can all pick and choose what's working in other markets. They've got total visibility and transparency. If you're working in a traditional model where a, a single clinic supports a single lab, that lab is only seeing what's going on in that one market. So there's less ability to innovate and to share those innovations with other markets. And so what we're finding in Ovation is that our collective clinical knowledge, the joint sum of what we know in-house is advancing faster than the individual laboratories when they were just part of an independent clinic. And the reason why a physician would want to go to a higher quality IVF lab than a, a smaller standalone uh, IVF laboratory is because the quality of an embryo uh, greatly drives the quality of the physician and that you can have a physician with incredible bedside manner. But if he or she is given low quality embryos, it doesn't matter how good your transfer technique is. That embryo may not have as good of a chance to survive. Yeah, I, I think most physicians would absolutely agree with that. And that's, that's what I was thinking as you were talking. It's like you can have the best skills to transfer an embryo in. But in reality, when you're growing an embryo in the lab, it's a cell culture. And you have to have people that have expertise in cell culture and know what to put in the mix at the right time. And, and you know, I, I think at Nashville, I can definitely say overall, we have definitely improved being part of this collaborative effort because it really is a collaborative effort. And I think it's really um, 
exciting for us as physicians that we can share all this information with different facilities and, and really improve upon what we're already doing, you know, for our patients. So I think it's, it's been a great collaboration, I know, for us in Nashville. And, and the delivery of fertility care really is a, it, it's a local market thing, right? You go to the Nashville Fertility Center because they are the best clinic in Nashville. You go to the Fertility Center in Las Vegas, the best clinic in, in, in Vegas and, and so on with Texas Fertility Center in San Antonio. And so to think that you're going to aggregate clinics and make a national clinic platform didn't work for us. We really wanted each of you, to, because you have that domain experience in your markets, to be able to continue to, to operate ind- independently on the clinic side with your own brand, your own patient engagement, you know, practices and policies and procedures, because your patients in Nashville are going to be different than the patients in San Antonio. They have different needs. They'll have different, um, uh, you know, social and physical and economic uh, concerns that they're bringing into the clinic. And so because of our clinics are all independent, they can operate to the best interest of their local patients. But the collaboration and the consolidation occurs on the lab side, the science, so that everyone's getting the best, highest quality embryos, regardless of what market you're in. And I'd like to say that for for our listeners, um, Nate kind of uh, talked about this a little bit earlier. When we think of fertility clinics in the United States, you have kind of single standing clinics where you have you know, these doctors work in this lab. And then you have um, probably five or six larger entities that own a whole bunch of clinics. And those generally own the clinic and the lab. And what makes Ovation and the Ovation Partner Clinics, like what all of us are part of, is, is relatively unique in the U.S. market. Is that correct? You're absolutely right. We are the so there are about you know four or five what we call consolidators or networks that are um, aggregating fertility uh, clinics and labs. And Ovation is unique in that we are the only ones that are focused on the laboratory. So um, any other clinic, any other network out there owns the clinics and they own the labs as well. Our model really facilitates uh, individual choice. And we're more of a meritocracy. So essentially, um, because we don't own the clinics, the clinics are, are able to define how their individual labs work and the local lab directors dictate which clinical policy they want to implement in that market. Because like I said, the patient populations are different. The air quality is different. There are different factors that would drive different decisions in the local markets. We specifically choose not to dictate a uniform policy across all markets because we felt that was short-sighted. We wanted to empower our local scientists and our local physicians to make the decisions that are in the best interest of their patients, as opposed to some CEO or some vice president of scientific advancement saying to everybody, this is what you should be doing everywhere. So one thing that um, that really has has struck me about being a part of the Ovation Network is, is like you said, is the transparency because most of the time there's not a huge amount of communication, even doc to doc. It's just when you go to the conferences and you sit down with your buddies who are in other places and you kind of say, all right, what are you doing for your transfers? What are you doing for your stims? What are you doing for this, that, and the other thing? And in working with Ovation has taken some of that, um, casualness out of it in a good way in the sense that as docs, we all sit down together usually at least once a year, if not more, and say, all right, let's go through 
this process, that process, who does this type of test or this type of prep and why, and, and putting that to use in a way that is uh, systematic and appeals more to our scientific and methodical sides rather than just the one-on-one conversations of, oh yeah, I use this med. Why do you do that? Oh, I don't know. It seems to work. Um, and really applying the best of everybody. I think it's pretty powerful too when you have, you know, 15 doctors with, you know, who knows how many experience. Some of us have 20 years experience in the field. Some have 25, some have 10. Probably when you add all that up in one room, it's really, really exciting clinically, I think, as a clinician to be able to hear perspectives from so many different physicians. And like you said, Carrie, it, it really is like we're in one big group and we collaborate and we share information and you know, all that can do is bring good for our patients, you know, from a clinical perspective. The other thing that I've been really pleasantly surprised with, too, is that because we have all this clinical information that we all share together, um, we can also publish papers. And we've done that. And, and at a lot of the national meetings, and Nate, you may be able to speak to this better than I can, but for example, at the last national meeting, how many, do you, do you remember how many publications we presented from ovation? Yeah, it was more than six. It was between six and eight. And it was, we were the most prolific um, publisher at ASRM um, last year when we all got together of any network in the country. And so something we're really proud of, the fact that we can focus on the science, you know, uh, allows us to really devote a lot of resources into, um, you know, that very focused collaboration. Um, and, uh, and I agree. I mean, the fact that, um, actually Carrie, you mentioned uh, that, uh, you know, physicians get together at least once a year and that's true in person, but twice a month we have uh, physician calls. So medical directors get together once a month and then the physicians from all the clinics get together once a month by, um, by phone, which we're about to turn into video conference. And so there's a lot of opportunities to collaborate now virtually thanks to COVID. So, Nate, I'm curious because you are, you're not a physician, you're not a scientist, and all of us have known this since the beginning of our med school days, but you put five physicians in a room and you get six opinions. (laughs) (laughs) How does that work when you're, you know, fly on the wall listening to these conversations and you've got 20, 30 physicians in there all jockeying for position? I don't envy you on that one at all. And let's just say that reproductive endocrinologists tend to be relatively opinionated about their way. (laughs) I actually haven't heard that before, Carrie, but I love it. Uh, You get five docs in a room, you get six opinions that I'm going to have to borrow that one. Um, So look, the way, so yeah, you want physicians in a room that are opinionated because otherwise the discussion's not lively, right? And everyone's just sitting around and everyone's bored. So um, I think the way that we've been able to really drive the ideas is through data. Okay. And there's a, there's a a concerted push within the company today and within our affiliated clinics to do a better job of uh, better than we even are today of gathering data and reporting it in a way that is timely is clear and is uh, something that we can act upon. Um, the data speaks for it in se- uh, itself. A physician could have a personal opinion, but if the data doesn't back up that opinion, well, then they kind of lose credibility in the conversation. And so the way I've solved it to the best of my ability is to just ask the physicians, what would prove your point? What would prove your position? What data, what metric can I document and gather for you for the next meeting that would lend credibility to your position? And I'll go and provide that at data and it may or may not support what the physician's trying to say. But at the end of the day, it's objective at that point. It's not personal. So, Nate, this is kind of a question, too. How, how many IVF, so when we talk about a cycle, that's where somebody goes through and gets stimulated, 
we take eggs from them, and then, you know, we make embryos, and that's considered as one cycle. So how many cycles over the past year did Ovation um, to get, do together from all the different collaborative labs? Great question. Yeah, so there's two really key numbers that we track within Ovation. The first is retrievals. Right, so that's when you um, you go to see a, a physician and they retrieve the eggs, uh, and that initiates uh, it can initiate an IVF cycle or it can initiate fertility preservation where you just freeze the eggs for a later date. But we did over four thousand retrievals uh, last year in Ovation, wow. and then we did uh, approximately forty two hundred transfers. So when you consider cycles, a lot of times, as I understand it, and you guys will correct me if I'm wrong, a cycle will include both a retrieval and a transfer right? Because it's when a medication cycle has started, essentially. And so we did over 8,000 cycles last year through the Ovation affiliated clinics. So how do you think that would compare roughly with, say, other, the average clinic in the United States? Oh, man. So uh, the fertility industry is very fragmented. Okay. So there's, you know, a little over 500 clinics, you know, that report to start, maybe 550, something like that. And most of them are one to two physicians in, in, in size. And so their labs are very small. And, you know, a physician on average, in my experience, in a non-mandated state will do about 100 retrievals a year. Okay. So, you know, when you compare that to about 4,000, you can think of the amount of knowledge, the amount of repetition that we get exposure to relative to a standalone clinic that may be doing 100 to 300 retrievals a year. And so, you know, we can have, for example, in um, Texas Fertility Center has a large lab in Austin. And I want to say we have like seven or eight embryologists in that one lab alone, which doesn't sound like a lot of people, but when you compare it to the standard size IVF lab, it's enormous. A lot of labs run with one full-time employee and then an offsite person that comes in during a cycle and there's not the continuity of the personnel and the team building doesn't work out. And so, um, yeah, I think that the, uh, the scale of ovation, if you compare it to other healthcare industries like you know, um, OBGYNs, those clinics can get up to, you know, 50, you know, 60, 100 physicians in a, in a large regional play. Cardiology, uh, orthopedics can get very large. Fertility still remains a very fragmented market. And so um, by aggregating these smaller clinics that have anywhere from one to five physicians in them, you start to get that scale that you don't get as a standalone entity. So one thing for our patients and listeners to know is, you know, you mentioned like OB-GYNs, like there are thousands of new OB-GYNs each year that come, come into um, kind of the market, they finish training. And for reproductive endocrinologists, there's probably only about 35 to 40 of those people who graduate each year. And so they're just there, there aren't a whole lot of us. And, um, you know, with the statistics of one in seven couples needs help getting pregnant, that's, that, that's not a lot of us to serve such a huge need. That's exactly right. Yeah. And one really cool thing that I personally think was a really cool thing out of our collaboration. In fact, our last in-person collaboration with all of our physicians we came up with the idea of, hey, how would, how would somebody like to do a podcast? <laughs> and so that is how Fertility Docs Uncensored was born through our last in-person physician, you know, group where we shared information. It was. That's really I was cool. sitting next to Carrie and we're like, hey, let's do it. Definitely <laughs> <laughs> fueled by at least one glass of wine. Uh, <laughs> at least one. <laughs> and how many subscribers or downloads are you up to now? 
We're almost at 20,000. We're pretty close. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if we're there quite yet, but we're pretty close. 17, 18, the last time we looked. And, you know, and we're all, obviously, we're all a part of the Ovation Network. And so we are biased towards it, having participated in clinical care, both before it and after it. And, um, you know, means that we have to cede control in some some respects, which if you talk to any fertility doctor is... Uh, goes against the nature of most of us because it's uh, we're all control freaks. Um, embryologists are equally control freaks, um, and so you know, it makes us good at what we do. Yeah, yeah. You want it. You want your physicians and embryologists to care. <laughs> yeah, and that's wonderful. Um, and you know, it it means that we've all had the opportunity to sit together. So we're we're obviously very biased towards this. Otherwise, we wouldn't be a part of it insert the opinionated component here, but, um, but it's really nice to be able to just send out a random text message and say, okay, girls, I've got XYZ um, patient and this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And patients have actually really appreciated the, the ability of me to say, you know, Hey, I've got my two partners locally and then I've got my colleagues elsewhere. And I'm just going to toss your case up and say, what does everybody else think? It's truly been a collaboration. I mean, I've been around kind of since the beginning and it has really been a true collaboration in every sense of the word. And I think it's done nothing but improved patient outcomes and patient care for sure. Well, Nate, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some information about Ovation with our listeners. And we hope you'll be able to join us again soon. This was a blast. I appreciate very much you guys inviting me on and I've enjoyed talking to you today. Wonderful. To our audience, thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can also visit us on fertilitydocsuncensored.com either to schedule an appointment with us or if you have a specific question that you want to be answered on air. And all questions will be answered anonymously. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. All right. We'll talk to you all next week. See you soon. Bye. 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 Yeah.